Hello, this is Rich Potter, and welcome to the What's So Funny podcast. Welcome back. So, last week's podcast was kind of short because I was really busy and really exhausted because I was coaching all week at circus camp. And I wanted to actually pontificate about that a little bit this week, but there was also a topic that I've been wanting to get to for a while now. And in the last week, something has happened in the world that uh, I thought would force my hand on this. So, um, anyone who knows me knows that the the topic of clowns is very uh, near and dear to my heart. Uh, I am a clown. I have been a clown for over 35 years. Uh, started my career, well, early in my career, I worked with Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Circus. And... Um, in the interim times, I mean, before, during, and after, I have been studying the the art form. Uh, if you add up class hours, work experience in the circus, theater, on the street, uh, thousands of hours of study and workshops, uh, if you add all that up together and you put it in terms of higher education, I'd, I don't know, I'd have an associate's degree or something. But one one thing I find in the more I study the art of uh, clown is that while I get more confident in the things that I do know, I find that the more I do learn, the less I actually do know. Uh, like I, Michelangelo uh, famously famously said, uh, "I'm still learning," and if you know if he's still learning, then yeah, I can't claim that I know everything about what I'm doing. Uh, and I, I know, I know that is a famous Michelangelo quote because I have that quote, uh, written on a pencil pouch. And so if it's on a pencil pouch, that is a good, uh, source of information, uh, who needs, you know, the, the better sources like Wikipedia. Anyway, when I get into discussions about clowns with lay people, I usually, I, I I quickly get the topic onto famous clowns that people might know, like Charlie Chaplin or uh, the Three Stooges, Buster Keaton, um, Laurel and Hardy, Dick Van Dyke, Tim Conway, Lucille Ball, Carol Prinet, and John Belushi. And this list could clearly go on, but that will be a future podcast. Um Today, I want to focus on John Belushi, uh, specifically the Blues Brothers movie, which I've I've uh, wanted to rewatch for a long time. Um, when I first watched this movie, it was the 1980s, when, not when it came out. I could not watch it when it came out because it was an R-rated movie and I was uh, well underage. I was too young uh, to go to an R-rated movie, so like many of my contemporaries, I had to wait until it came out on network TV. Now, those of you who lived through those dark ages, uh, waiting for a movie to come out on network TV, first of all, it took forever, but second of all, you didn't have a VHS machine. You could not record it. Now, a VHS machine is before we had DVR and all that stuff. Okay, so... It's be- it took about three years for it to get, get released onto VHS. Um, but in the interim, like uh, probably, I want to say 1982, it might have been after it got released on VHS uh, that it came out on TV. I just know I was too young to really appreciate what was in that movie. 
And to my defense, back in the olden days of the 1980s, when a popular movie came out on TV, uh, it was usually a couple years after everyone's already stopped talking about it. So I got to see the movie on a 13-inch black and white television. Uh, first of all, when it was first filmed, it was uh, and edited. It was uh, two hours and 40 minutes. And they were told by the studio that they had to slash it down uh, in order to have a theatrical release. It was too long of a movie. So they slashed it down to two hours and 14 minutes for the theatrical release. But then to fit it into the two-hour time slot on network television, they had to slash not only those 14 minutes, but also 15 additional minutes per hour so that they could put in commercial breaks because, uh, of course, commercials are what pay for the television programming. It's what keeps the network afloat, etc., etc. So this 160-minute film was trimmed down to 90 minutes. And, of course, they bleeped out most of the dirty words. So my lifelong reflection of this movie, my recollection of this movie, is that it was about a couple of guys dressed in black who got into a lot of car chases, and they seemed to know some musicians. And for some reason, the, the sting from the song Can't Turn Me Loose, or Can't Turn You Loose, depending on the version, it's burned in my head. And I, I swear it, was, it must have been overdubbed for the television release. And, and Can't Turn You Loose. The, the sting I'm talking about is uh, the one that goes, da, 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 da. You know the rest. Or if you don't, you should look it up. Otis Redding. The movie I saw was not the Blues Brothers movie. It was the pastiche of the Blues Brothers movie. And time has gone on. Needless to say, I got to see it. I got a copy of it. I watched it. And it was marvelous. And I felt like I've never seen it before. But I must have... There, there, it, it had some familiar echoes. In any case, I wanted to, to explore the clown aspect of... Uh, of of this movie, and, and particularly John Belushi. But really, this is a classic tradition of the one-two uh, of clown theory. You have a high-status guy and a lower-status guy. The higher-status clown and the lower-status clown. This is Jake and Elwood, Elwood being the high-status, and Jake being the low-status. Dan Aykroyd, the tall, skinny, smarter one. Not the smart one, but the smarter one. And then John Belushi, the, the dumber one, uh, the Jake. They're both... Other, meaning they dress and act differently from how one would expect normal people to. They're creatures motivated largely by id, that part inside you that just says, I want it now, and there's no governing force that prevents that. Uh, and especially Jake, the John Belushi character. He's, he sees something, he wants it. And that's pretty, pretty much pervasive among, I'd say, 90% of the work I, I recall uh, John Belushi doing. And you look into Animal House and you look into 1941. He's just this character who just wants wants it now and he's going to get it. He's a little bit animal. And that's actually clowns. Going back to tribal clowns, clowns are they're part man, part animal, and of course part God. They, they are other. They are not of this, of this world, but they do connect. They intersect with our world. In this way, the, the two of them are dressed in seemingly normal-looking suits, but they're a little bit off. They have these black black suits, black tie, black sunglasses, black fedora, white shirt, 
they're other. They stand out from everyone else in the movie. And even people wearing suits don't look like this. They're just a little bit touched. They're a little bit off from center, eccentric. They're they're clown characters in this world of of normal. So at the top of the movie, you see clearly Elwood, Dan Aykroyd, is the higher status one. He shows up at the prison to pick up his friend, his compatriot, Jake. Elwood is the one who has all the information. He arranges the car. He holds a job. He keeps everything together uh, while... Uh, Jake is in the slammer. He's in prison for three years. So already it's established. He's kind of like the Bud Abbott to John Belushi's Lou Costello. Uh, And if you don't know who Abbott and Costello is, I'm sorry. (laughs) Or or were, I guess. Their their most famous thing would be, if you've heard the Who's on First comedy routine, they're the ones who popularized it. Uh, It goes back way back before them. People were borrowing and borrowing and borrowing and adapting and adapting and adapting and they're the ones who got it in uh, on on the big screen and so they are the ones who are known for it but they did not write the routine they may have adapted it but they did not write it so uh, in any case i went off on a tangent jake gets in the car first order of business is they're going to see the penguin Sister Mary Stigmata, the nun who oversaw the orphanage when they came, uh, that they came from. Elwood has the high status in the duo, but when they go to see the nun, it's established very quickly that he's lower status in another hierarchy. It's always good to have an authority figure to play against, uh, just as it's always good to have a trampoline under you when you jump out of an airplane. And I don't recommend testing this metaphor in real life. So quickly we realize that they are on a mission from God. You know, there's some musical numbers in there, of course, and uh, I'm. I, it's a tremendous movie for music and for dance and for comedy and for action. It's all these things. Well, these are all things that make it a great movie. I'm focusing specifically on the comedy clown aspect of the movie. So anyway, we get our exposition. They're on a mission from God. They have to put the band back together. They have to make some money, $5,000 to save the orphanage. And this, there, of course, there are things, there's musical numbers, there's dancing, it's a, it's an action movie as well, but I'm focusing, for the purpose of this, on the comedy aspect, the clown aspect of the movie. And so we move towards the, we end up at a fancy French restaurant where their horn player works in, in the three years while the band's been broken up, he got a job as a maitre d' at a fancy schmancy uh, French restaurant, and food is a universal need of all humans, and as such, it is f- a familiar thing with accepted customs, and and therefore ripe for subversion by the clown. They go into this hoity-toity restaurant with a mission to get the maitre d' back into their band, and when he says no, they sit down among the other diners, the other high-class diners, the other very high-class diners. And again, the trampoline theory. There's something for them to push against. There's there's some tension between their world and the real people's world, but you give them more status, and these more animalistic characters have something to push strongly against. There's greater contrast. If there were a bunch of normal Joes in a burger joint, there's not as much foundation. So the higher the status of the surroundings, the more tension you have. And therefore... The more comedy you can have when the two others, like the Blues Brothers, sit down to eat the five shrimp cocktails. 
Normally, people don't go into high-end fancy French restaurants and throw shrimp into their dining partner's mouth. The goal, however, was not to offend. The goal was to get their band back together and save the orphanage for the children. But they did subvert the cultural norms and offend some high-society diners to get there. We, the groundlings, like that sort of thing. This scene strongly echoes uh, Harpo and Chico Marx-type antics, and I'm certain whomever devised that scene, whether Aykroyd or John Landis or Belushi, were clearly a big fan of the Marx Brothers growing up. Moving on, there's car chases, and the car chases in this movie are spectacular, monumentally expensive, and follow a clown tradition dating back to at least the comedy chases of the foundational Commedia dell'arte of the 15th century the ones who innovated many of the clown tropes and comedies, uh, situation comedies that are still used in popular comedy entertainment today. On stage, your limitations are what you can fit onto and into that stage. So with their chase scenes, generally everyone chased one person. Uh, and you might be familiar with this sort of thing with Benny Hill. Uh, he did this famously in nearly episode, every episode of his show. On the theatrical stage, you can build in trap doors, hang people from the rafters, and hide people in set pieces for surprises. In cinema, your only limitation is budget. All else was details. And their budget for this movie was $17.5 million. Well, they spent $30 million. <laughs> They used what they could for their chase, the cars, and they went through a lot of cars. And cocaine. But that's another story. They spent a good chunk of the movie making enemies with police, a rival band, a redneck club owner, a mysterious woman played by Carrie Fisher, yes, Princess Leia herself, who at the time was Dan Aykroyd's girlfriend. And the escalation brought platoon after platoon of police, uh, the National Guard, uh, helicopters, planes. I think there's a tank in there, or a couple of tanks. Foot soldiers. It's just this... Uh, they pull out all the stops. They, <laughs> they spent that $30 million really well. And it culminates in this final chase scene of amazing comic proportions. They are on a mission from God, and their mission is to make $5,000 to save the orphanage. But they are grifters. They're failures. Dishonest people who are robbing Peter to pay Paul. Which is a classic clown character trope. Charlie Chaplin, he always started and ended with nothing. These guys, they started with nothing, and they they do save the day. They, they do get the money to pay off the orphanage. They get money to pay off the band that they've been bilking for years. But the Blues Brothers themselves end up in prison with no money, no recording contract, nothing. But they're still having fun, because that's who they are. But as grifters, they're, they are failures. They're dishonest people, but never... They're never tricking people out of malevolence. It's, it's just in their nature. They're bad with money. But in this movie, from, from the beginning of the movie, they're serving a higher purpose. They're trying to help the penguin. All the grifting they do in the movie is to help the children. Now, although this podcast is about comedy, I do want to point out possibly one of the best soundtracks ever is, is the Blues Brothers soundtrack, which I think was largely cut from the butchered TV broadcast. I don't remember the music. And maybe that was just my Philistine tastes when I was a kid. The musical direction by Paul Schaefer from, from the David Letterman show, uh, credited in the credits as Peter Gunn, which is a little hat tip to 
a really cool theme song from the Peter Gunn show. Amazing blues musical artist throughout. Um, but the reason I decided to do this podcast now uh, instead of next week or the week after is because in the last week, one of the most amazing featured artists in the movie just shed off this mortal coil. I will dedicate this podcast, even though it's about comedy, I'm going to dedicate it to a beautiful singer, beautiful musician, beautiful person, social activist. Goodbye, Aretha Franklin. May the angels be good enough to be your backup singers. Now would be a good time for all of you to have a glass of wine and watch this movie and toast Aretha, or at least find her performance of Think from the Blues Brothers movie on YouTube. Regardless, I just want to say these Blues Brothers should be included in any history of clown that includes the 20th century. It's an amazing movie. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. If you haven't seen it in the last 10 years, you should see it. With that, this is drawing to the end of my podcast for this week. Thanks for tuning in. And if you have some topic you'd like me to cover, whether it's about the nuts and bolts of comedy or just riffing on some idea, put it in the comments, send me an email, find me on richpotter.com, or, I don't know, smoke signals, you can put a message in a bottle. I'm not sure I'll get it, but it might make you feel better. Have a great day, and see you next Wednesday. This has been the What's So Funny podcast with Rich Potter. Thanks for tuning in. New episodes on Wednesdays.